The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. ...and be truly transformative in our nation's history. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, la- yesterday afternoon, uh, one of the justices of the Supreme Court, a man named Antonin Scalia, died. Now, Antonin Scalia has been one of the bulwarks of the conservative Supreme Court. He has handed down decisions with regard to religious freedom. He has been a major dissenting voice on a lot of the more controversial legislation. In case you were missing it, in case you didn't see it, this was a huge loss for... Christianity in the United States. Um, And as I was driving home last night and I heard about this, um, I got pretty upset. And I I just sat there and I was like, really, God, another one? We're getting kicked in the teeth again? Like, we're getting kicked in the teeth again. So we're going to lose. We've got all these different religious liberty and abortion cases that are getting ready to go up to the Supreme Court. And you take the one guy who is the difference between... A, a liberal majority and not. And you did it in the last presidency, in the last year of a liberal president. I was mad. Sometimes I, sometimes I talk to God, and sometimes I yell at God. Right? We have that kind of relationship. It's not good, but that's the way it is. And I'm, I'm just sitting there like, really? Seriously, what do I even try? What do I even try? What are we doing here? I mean, if you're, if you're not going to do your part, then why should I do my part? I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to confess that. I believe that. And as so often happens, as I am yelling at God, he speaks to me out of the whirlwind like he talked to Job and says, we're we're going to do this, Andrew? Like, really? We're we're going to do this now? Well, gird yourself up like a, put your daddy pants in, because we're going to go have a conversation. And he proceeded to take me to the woodshed, and it wasn't wasn't fun for me. I, I say that this morning because it, it, it falls into line with the scripture that we're going to be studying. And, and it may not seem like it at first, but I just want you to bear with me. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17 as we look at God revealing his plan to his people and dealing with their objections. The first verse of Matthew 17 says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, now just to give you the backstory, just to set the stage of what's going on here. Jesus has just finished doing his ministry in Galilee. He has done all of these miraculous things, all these amazing things to prove to the people that he is who he said he was. The Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God. That's his identity. That's who he is. And he he has fulfilled all of the prophecies. He has fulfilled all of the things that point to that. Some people have accepted him. Most of the people have not. But we're past the whole, I'm going to prove who I am state. And we've moved to the second half of Matthew. And in the second half of Matthew, everything is focused on so what? Okay, Jesus is the Messiah. So what? 
Jesus is the Messiah. This is what the ministry of the Messiah is going to look like. And so in the last chapter, we had these two very major uh, events. We had this, this incredibly moving moment where Peter and the disciples are with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi in the midst of all of these pagan shrines. And Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? But, but more importantly, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's like, yes, Peter, you've got it. That's awesome. That You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Yes. It's like when you're a teacher and the kid just gets it. Right? If you've got any teachers in here, I, my, my first year of teaching, right? But there's, a mo- there's moments where the kid just, mo- it doesn't happen often, but there's, like, every now and then the kid, you get the kid who's, you know, the kid at the back who's just bad and doing horrible stuff and lighting stuff on fire, and he just, he just gets it. And you're like, yes! And then he does something stupid right afterwards, right? And that's what happens with Peter. Peter does something. Peter's like, yes, I got him. You're the mis-. And then he does something stupid right afterwards. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, and this is what the Messiah is going to have to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And Peter's like, no, you're not going to do that. And this man who Jesus said is going to be the rock upon which he builds his church... Jesus now calls him the devil. He says, Satan, get behind me. Right? So you have this, this, this balance here. Now, six days later, right? Six days of preparation. And you know, Peter's got to be seething. Six days of like, what did I do? What's going on? This can't be good. Like, ah, man, I blew it. And Jesus grabs him and James and John and says, we're going to go up on top of this mountain. Now, Peter, James, and John are in many ways the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. Okay? We have Peter, who is the rock, who is a rock because he's steady, but he's also a rock because he's kind of dumb and he makes bad decisions and does all kinds of stuff, abandons Jesus, right? But then you have, you have James and John, the sons of thunder, right? The, the, son, the, literal, the sons of thunder, right? The, 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 the bar fighters, the, the guys who want to go out and like, and like call down fire on villages that don't accept Jesus, right? They're those guys. One of them will be the first disciple to die. The first disciple during the apostolic church to be martyred. That's James. The last is John. The beloved disciple, the last disciple to die, the disciple that is going to write the gospel of John, the disciple who's going to write the letters of John, the disciple who is going to be tortured and boiled alive and left to die on Patmos and who will write the book of Revelation. And so we have this, these bookends, this, this cross-section of the experience of the disciples and Jesus takes these men and he calls them out and he takes them up on the mountain. And they, and they follow him because he is about to do something amazing. He is about to, to show them something 
that is incredible in the midst of these traumatic revelations, right? In the midst of this, this realization that, that this ministry that they have given everything that they have to, in the midst of this understanding of what's going to happen, they look at, I mean, you can see them going up the mountains and you can, and the valley opens up and they, they can look out in the distance and they can, they can see the smoke and the, the light from these cities that they're going to be going into. You may, they may have even been able to see Jerusalem out there as a dark cloud on the horizon, they can see this coming, and yet Jesus is taking them up, and something transcendent, something transformative is about to happen to them. As we read on, starting in verse 2, it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. See, just as this spirit of dread, this understanding of where they're going to go and what they're supposed to do, is about to overcome and overwhelm these weak men, something amazing happens. The scripture tells us that the Lord was transfigured. The word used is metamorphose, which means to change his form. We don't know what that means. We don't know. All we know is that he became as bright as the sun. He glowed. Later on in their lives, two of these men will, will try to get across what this meant. John will begin his gospel this way. He'll say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. And that has been made in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This image of Jesus Christ as the light permeated everything John did for the rest of his life. It dictated his theology. It drove him. This was a transformational moment for him. He was changed. He was never the same. He, he, in fact, is the only disciple that does not abandon Jesus. We find him at the foot of the cross with Mary, and Jesus says, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. That's a big deal. That's a major event. As he was writing this, he must have remembered the image of Jesus transfigured in front of him, becoming something completely different, awesome and powerful. Peter used this as the foundation for his ministry. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of this majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Paul, Peter looks at this and says, no, 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 this wasn't a philosophy. This isn't something I read in a book. I didn't get this off Google. Nobody talked to me about this on a plane. I literally saw Jesus transfigured. And I know that it's real. 
And it was a belief that became so real to him that he endured death upside down on a cross for it. That's buy-in, in case you were wondering. That's what buy-in looks like. He drank the Kool-Aid. He pushed the I Believe button. He was there. He saw it. And while this in and of itself is amazing, something as amazing happens while Jesus is up on the mountain, being transfigured, changing, being bright, white light, Moses and Elijah appear next to him. Now, I don't know how they know what Moses and Elijah looked like or who they were. I'm not sure. I figure if, if you're in the presence of the transfigured Christ standing with two guys, you just kind of know. So we're going to have to go with that. Maybe there was a caption. Who knows? But he's standing between Elijah and Moses. They didn't have the flannel graphs, right? So I don't, I don't know how they would know. These two men are the pillars of the Jewish faith. Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah, the prophet. These are the men that defend the goodness of God and the honor of God. And Moses and Elijah are standing between, or standing on either side of Jesus. Now, I want you to, I want you to catch the overtones here, right? Not six months later, Jesus is going to go up a different mountain, Right? He's going to go up a different mountain. Instead of being bathed in light, he's going to be bathed in his own blood. He's going to go up on a mountain, and instead of being between the two most powerful, most influential figures in Jewish heritage, he's going to be between two thieves. The, the cloud is not going to come down bright white. The cloud is going to be black, and it's going to cover the sun. There are these overtones, this glory that precedes suffering, that glory and suffering in the Messiah are connected inexorably in a way that cannot be separated. There's powerful symbolism here and incredibly moving events. They were witnessing the Shekinah glory of the Lord emanating from Jesus, a glory that left the temple before it fell. The glory that would come down and dwell with his people in the tabernacle. They are seeing something that they have read about their whole lives. And it's happening here. Just like Moses goes up the mountain and the cloud comes down and God speaks to him out of the cloud and his face glows. Everything around them is crying out. And something amazing is happening. And in the midst of all of this, the revelation that comes from God is this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's interesting here that we, we look at Peter again. And Peter, who, God bless him, man, the guy, he just, he can't win for losing. Jesus is standing there. He's conversing between Elijah and Moses and, and Peter, who just can't be quiet. Right? He just can't. Like, this is incredible, and he's getting to watch. He's like, ooh, ooh I want to be part of this too. I, I want to be included. I'm kind of a big deal. I'm important. So here's what we're going to do, Jesus. We're going to make three tabernacles for you on this mountain, and that way you can live with Elijah and Moses, because obviously if you've been transfigured and you're on a mountain with three guys that have been dead for a thousand years, you need a tabernacle to live in, and I'm the only one that can do it for you. In the Gospel of Luke, we understand that, that Peter doesn't really know what he's saying. That he's just talking to talk. He's like he's using, he's using inane conversation as a shield against intimacy. We don't know. We don't really know what he's doing. But I think there are some elements here that we can key in on. I think there is, this is his last ditch effort to try to stop the crucifixion. 
Right? Because if he can build tabernacles on this mountain with Elijah and Moses and Jesus living in them, Jesus doesn't have to die. This is, becomes the new Mount Zion. This becomes the place that everybody will come to in pilgrimage. The Jewish state will be revolutionized and nobody has to die. And sure, Peter gets to be the gatekeeper and he gets to, you know, take the collection and do whatever and he gets to be an important guy, but everybody wins. Isn't that what we're looking for? Right? If you're a businessman, you're looking for the win-win. This is a win-win-win. Everybody wins here. And so Peter speaks up. He's like, hey, let's go for the win. Jesus, let's go for the big win. We'll revolutionize the Jewish faith and nobody has to die. And in the midst of this inane babble, the, the Spirit of God comes down on the mountain and as so often happens, the revelation of God silences our ideas. When we try to stage manage God, when we try to tell God the way that things are going to go, the way that things should go, we start questioning God and his plan. He comes down and pulls back the curtain a little bit and goes, really? Where were you when I made the world? Because I did it without you. I'm pretty sure I'm okay. Peter's response was correct. He falls on his face shaking. That's the response when we come into contact with the living God. That's the appropriate response. If you ever come into contact with the living God as a glowing cloud on top of a mountain, get on your face. Okay? You've been warned. You heard it here from me. You can thank me later. And so we find Peter, James, and John on their face on the mountain as God is declaring who Jesus is, the, the present, in the presence of Moses, the lawgiver, in the presence of Elijah, the prophet, God is placing his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus has done so far. And just so we're clear what that is, he is the one meant to carry the drama and majesty of God's conversation. He is literally in the presence of God. And he is being, he's telling Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the precious Son of God, not the way that we're sons of God and daughters of God. We're God's children, but we're not God's children the way that Jesus is God's child. We did not live with God before the foundation of the world. We're not that kind of son. He's like, this is my beloved son, and I am well pleased with him. So when Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, I am pleased with that. When Jesus claimed that before Abraham was, I was before, I'm pleased with that. When Jesus told everyone that he was going to go down to Jerusalem and that he was going to die on the cross, I am pleased with that. That brings me honor. When Jesus says that he can tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, God is pleased with that. This is not some kind of prophet who has gone off the reservation. Jesus is not on his own program. Jesus is working out the plan of God that has been written down before the beginning of time. God is pleased with the ministry and the work of Jesus. And just to, just to put the cherry on top of the Sunday that is this whole thing, God quotes from the servant song of Isaiah making very clear to Peter that, yes, 
Jesus is supposed to go down in the valley and he's supposed to suffer and he's supposed to die. Because that is the only way that man can be redeemed. And if you stand in the way of that, you're standing in the way of the redemption of mankind. Because there is no other name under which we can be saved. See, Jesus is not transfigured because he becomes something new. Right? Jesus doesn't become God when he's transfigured. Jesus doesn't become the Messiah on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus reveals the other side of his nature on the Mount of Transfiguration. God reveals to the disciples who Jesus really is. He pulls that curtain back a little bit to show them the glory. The glory that has existed with God before the beginning of time. Right, Just like John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what God is showing them. That this, that this glory that permeates Jesus is the glory of God reflected in his Son. The author of Hebrews will describe Jesus as the, as the effulgence of God's glory. <coughs> the exact representation of him on earth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, but here's the sad reality. People have loved darkness. And so as they are heading down the mountain, Jesus tells them some very confusing things. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. See, Jesus doesn't listen to Peter. He doesn't stay up on the mountain. He begins to head down. And as he's heading down, he gives them this instruction. Hey, you've seen this amazing thing? Don't tell anyone about it. <coughs> Don't tell anyone about it. And, and so we gotta, we got to ask the question. This is the thing that always confuses me, right? If Jesus can be transfigured on the mount and can show forth the glory that he had with the Father before the beginning of time, why wouldn't you go into the temple courtyard and do that there? Why not transfigure yourself right in the middle of Jewish religion? That would be what I would do if I was the eternal Son of God from before the creation of time, right? I mean, that's, if that was me, I would do that. But he doesn't. And entwined in this is the fundamental truth of what's happening here. See, this isn't the first time God has revealed his glory to human beings. Right? This whole event mimics or reflects or reminds us of Moses coming down from the mountain with the two tablets and his face glows with the reflected glory of God. Now, Moses was not the son of God created before the beginning uh, or, or living with God before the beginning of time, right? He's not that kind of glory. And yet 
as he comes down into the midst of the Jewish people, they look at him and they say, put a veil on your face. Because the glory of the Lord is too much for us. There is this reoccurring theme that the people run away from the glory of the Lord. That they don't want to be with God. That they don't want to be in his presence. Because the presence of God brings judgment and change. And because of this, Jesus has to go down and has to be killed. Because of this deep perversion within the hearts of man, because of this dark, broken-heartedness that all people have, he has to do something more than just a publicity stunt. He has to go down and do something that will enable us to have changed hearts. He has to go down and die and take on himself the sin that every man commits. That's the plan. And it's a plan that's driven by human sin. It's a plan that's driven by the sins of the Jewish people, and it's driven by our sin. Right? Jesus goes down into the valley, he leaves the mountaintop, goes down and suffers because of everything that the Jews had done, and everything that we have done. All of the little, the little white lies and the little sins that we don't talk about, all those sins, they're not free. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not free. All of them have to be paid for by somebody. There is, there's no little sin that, that doesn't hurt anybody. Every sin hurts Christ. And so as part of this process, he goes down there so that we can in turn be in the presence of God without a veil. So that we can experience the glory of the, of the Lord, the glory of the risen Christ, and not be burned. The people have rejected Jesus from lack of proof, but they haven't really rejected him from lack of proof. They've rejected him because their hearts are broken and dark, and Jesus has to go down and replace those hearts, and all of us have to have our hearts replaced. All of us have to become made new. See, Jesus is the light that changes everything, but you have to have eyes to be able to see that light. But when we say that Jesus is the way and the truth and the light, when we say that Jesus is the light of the world, when he goes up on the mountaintop and transfigures, we have this, this image of Jesus as the light, and it is a light that changes everything. It is a light that changes the way that we read the Old Testament. Right? All of the Old Testament has to be interpreted through the life of Jesus. He's the key that makes all of it make sense. He's the key that allows us to take these innocuous things that may sometimes seem to contradict or may seem to not apply to us anymore, and they all paint the picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light that allows us to understand what God has revealed to us. But, but almost... Almost as importantly, Jesus is the light of the world, and he allows us to see the world in its proper perspective. He allows us to see what is really going on in the world around us. And, I, and I'm going to tell you this right now, and you're probably not going to like this, and I don't like it. Jesus didn't promise us a rose garden. He, he didn't promise us that 
Christians would be healthy, prosperous, and successful. He didn't promise he, he didn't promise that we would have this comfortable middle-class existence and that, that that would just go on forever. He didn't promise this that we would sweep every election and that every governmental agency would bow to us and that we would permeate our culture and would conquer it in the name of a worldly, secularized, sort of semi-Christian faith. He didn't promise that. That's not what Christian victory looks like. And we keep looking for it. I keep looking for it. I keep wanting to see my country become Christian. And guys, that's not the promise. You know what Christ promised? He promised that his followers would be hated. He says that. He says, they've hated me. They're going to hate you. Right? That, that's, that's hard. But it's real. He, he promised us that he would bring not peace but conflict. Right? He said that I, I, I've come to bring the sword. He, he says, I've come to, to tear families apart. Right? Mothers and fathers will hate their children. Children will hate their parents. Brothers and sisters will hate each other. That will happen because of Christ. So when we sit here and, we, and when, when we look and we expect God to conform to our comfort, we're going to be disappointed every single time because that's not what he came to do. Jesus promised his followers that they would be dragged before the courts. That they would lose everything for him. That's what Jesus promised. That's the light. That's what the light reveals. He promised that in his name we would be hated and ostracized and that we would be given the opportunity to suffer for him. But he also promised that, he would, that we would succeed in the mission that he gave us. See, so often we fail because we don't operationalize success in the right way. Because we think that the wrong things are victory. So what is the victory that Christ said that we would have? He said that we would go into all the world and make disciples of men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do everything that he commanded. That's what he will give us the energy to be able to do. That's what he will give us the power to be able to do. That, if you want to see God working in the world, that's where you're going to see God working. See, that, that goes against what we want to do, though. We, we don't want to disciple people. We don't want to see changed lives. What we want to do is we want to have the government change people's lives through the force of law. That's what we're looking for. Right? I, I want, I want, non, I want un, non-Christians to act like Christians uh, because the law makes them act that way, and that way I don't have to get to know them, and it's not messy. Guys, the law is a bad way to disciple people. It's a bad way to disciple people. So we have to stop winning, worrying so much about who's going to win, about how things are going to go. And I'm talking to myself because I'm a political junkie. I watch it like it's, the, like it's a sport. Man, I wear the t-shirt, I read the blogs, I love it. I dig it. And I get too into it. It doesn't matter who wins the next election, because Christ is still on his throne. It doesn't matter who the next Supreme Court justice is, because Christ is still on his throne. We have to do our job as citizens, but Christ is still on his throne. And I wonder this, if we 
would stop worrying so much about who's going to win the next election and start worrying about who the unsaved people around us are. I wonder what would happen in the world that we live in. I, I wonder what would actually happen if we stopped worrying about the things that we can't control and we started worrying about the things that God told us to do, the things that we can control, the things that we do have the power to do. Right? I, I can't really control who wins the Republican primary. I can vote. But I can't control it. You know what I can do? I can share my faith with the lady that serves me coffee on Mondays. I, I can share my faith with the student that comes to me in tears. I, I can, you can share your faith with the people that are in your workplace with you. You can share your faith with your family members. These are the things that we can do. These are the things that God has called us to do. We've got to stop worrying about ISIS and what they're doing in Syria. And start worrying about the Muslims that God has brought here that we're not evangelizing. I mean, do you, do you realize what's happening here? People have literally died to take the gospel into, Islam, into Islamic countries. Right? There are people that have died to do that. And we have huge... Muslim communities living in our city here and it's totally legal to evangelize to them like you can completely do that and yet we don't we complain about it they're coming here to the middle of the Bible Belt they should be blanketed with evangelists they shouldn't turn around without somebody telling them about how Jesus loves them and died for their sins because Christ is in control and we may not like the way it looks. And we may not like what the outcome is, but he is in control and he will be glorified. And we know how the story ends. At the end of the day, we close our eyes in death. We open them to see our loving father saying, good job, well and faithful servant. Come into the glory that's been prepared for you. Like they can't touch us. No matter what happens, they can't touch us. Because our treasure is someplace else. Our treasure is someplace they can't steal it, where it won't decay. Everything here will evaporate and be gone. It's a mist. But everything that we live and die for lives on with us in heaven. And so, I want you to cheer up this morning. I want you to pick your head up. Because we're not on the losing team. It may feel like we got our teeth kicked in, but we didn't. Because this is a blip. This is a bump on the road to eternity. And this is all within the plan of God. See, Christ is the light that illuminates the world around us, but we have to have the eyes to be able to see that the things that he is showing us. Nothing can change the fact that Brianna Shirley came to Christ and that she will live for eternity in the light of her Father. Doesn't matter who's on the Supreme Court. Nobody can take that away from her. And so we need to invest in the eternal things. We need to allow Christ to illuminate the things around us, and then we need to act accordingly. Because see, Jesus is the light of the world. But we have to have the eyes to see it. Please bow your heads with me.
Dear sweet Jesus, God, we, we come to you and we confess that we have paid attention to things that we shouldn't. We confess to you that we have lacked faith, that we have served other gods. We ask your forgiveness for this. We ask you to take us up on the mountaintop and to show us your plan. And if you don't want to do that, God, that's okay. We ask that you would give us the faith to be able to carry out the plan that you have for us. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. That is a time where if you have questions or if you want to know more about the Jesus that we've talked about, please come forward and we'll talk to you. If you're embarrassed or you don't want to, that's okay. Come and talk to me afterwards. But don't let the questions that you have sit for another week. Talk to somebody. Six oh four. Please rise. We'll sing the first two unless we need one.